حضرت فردك ميتر راح تكون بالانجليزي والموضوع امتياز خلاف الكهرباء واصول الصراع العربي الاسرائيلي برحب فيكم جميعا بعرف انه اعلنا عنها يعني بلحظه قصيره جدا فاحنا شايفين انه قدرتوا تيجوا بهذا الوقت وخصوصا بحب ارحب بالدكتوره اروى العامري اللي عم بتزورنا من الجامعه الاردنيه استاذه علم النفس في الجامعه الاردنيه و دكتوره في سايكوثيرابي بالعمان اهلا وسهلا فيكي Frederick Mayton is a historian of science and technology in the modern Middle East. He received his PhD in 2015 from NYU, in the science of human culture, in the science in human culture program at Northwestern University. He's a postdoctoral student at Northwestern at the moment. His research focuses on the intersection of politics, science, and technology. I'm sorry about that. The title of his lecture is also the title of his book, which is coming forthcoming from the University of California Press. I think 2017, maybe? 18, 19, 20. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, 2018, no. I hope. It's titled Electrical Palestine, Jewish and Arab Technopolitics under British Rule. Uh, and this work charts the construction of mandatory Palestine's electric grid as it evolved with increasingly divided politics and society of the area. In an effort to rethink both the origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the interplay of power, science, and technology more broadly. This is very ambitious. Yeah, I hope we have time to grasp all of these. Yeah. Uh, Frederick's uh, work has appeared in Comparative Studies in Society and History, Past and Present, Arab Studies Journal, the Rutledge Handbook of History of the Middle East Mandate. Uh, on a more personal note, uh, Frederick is an old friend and colleague, and I think uh, he used to be my student in a, in a, in a different century, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, please, the floor is yours. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, all right, so um, I'm going to talk about the earliest uh, uh, episode of electrification uh, in Palestine. Um, and I'll go into this in detail. But if um, there are sort of small questions that you have along the way, if there's something that you're you know, not following along with, please let me know and I'll sort of clarify as we go. Uh, but if you have any bigger questions, yeah, just save them for the end and I'll be happy to talk about anything you like. OK. So uh, in uh, the summer of 1923, the Russian-born Jewish engineer Pinchas Rutenberg threw the switch at Mandatory Palestine's first electrical distribution system, lighting up a portion of oh, Alambi Street uh, in Tel Aviv. According to Rutenberg, it was a step that was destined to become the most important instrument for the sound development of the country. The local British government in Jerusalem agreed with this assessment, and uh, so did London. And Hubert Young of the Middle East Department of the Colonial Office predicted that uh, the, uh, success, sorry, the successful inauguration of Mr. Rutenberg's schemes will do more than anything else to pacify Palestine, facilitate immigration, and develop the country. So it's a big ask for a, an electric grid. Tel Aviv's Jewish residents echoed that excitement. To them, the roadside pylons couldn't multiply fast enough. But to the Palestinians in neighboring Jaffa, the grid's expansion was a mixed blessing. The high-tension cable wound its way into town with promises of modernity and the creature comforts of civilized life. But it also signaled the encroachment of Jewish nationalism on Arab Palestine. 
A significant portion of the Palestinians were staunchly opposed to Rutenberg's electrification, and a few weeks before the lights went on on Allenby Street, uh, an angry crowd made its way through the town chanting that the, uh, Rutenberg's lampposts are the gallows of our nation. <laughs> um, so, uh, in my talk today, uh, I want to dwell on this brief episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, thank you for illustrating my point. Uh, uh, so, I want to dwell on this brief episode uh, when the first electric supply system uh, was built in Palestine. Uh, it's a very short period from December 1920 when Rutenberg submitted his proposal to the British mandatory government uh, up until November 1923 when the power system was completed, the lights turned on, and all opposition to his venture had been quelled. Uh, and this, as we'll see, poses a number of interesting questions, at least I think so. Most obviously, how is it possible for Rutenberg to overcome the widespread opposition against him? And this at a time when Palestinians made up over 90% of the population. <clears throat> but also, why did the Palestinians regard the power system as a handmaiden of Zionism, and how did that influence their politics? The answer, as I'll argue, has to do with the way electrification played a part in making Palestine into an object of nationalist contention, and the way the properties of the technology itself had a fundamental and lasting impact on the character and strategies of both Zionism and Palestinian nationalism. So the key element of this story concerns something I refer to as boundary work. That is, at the heart of this lays a question, um, what sort of activity is electrification? If to Rutenberg and the British, uh, the project was technological and economic in nature, to many Palestinians, it was obviously political. Uh, in a letter to the British Parliament, the Palestinian Arab executive uh, warned that uh, the Zionists through Mr. Rutenberg are aiming at getting a stranglehold on the economics of Palestine, and once these are in their hands, they will become virtual masters of the country. As a result, electrification became a site of contestation that was ultimately over epistemic authority. It was about the muscle to draw the boundaries around Rutenberg's contentious project. Those boundaries mattered a great deal in determining the kinds of considerations that should govern the construction of the electric system. Uh, but they had a broader significance, too. By winning the local credibility contest over electrification in Jaffa, Rutenberg, and by extension the Zionist movement, bolstered their epistemic authority overall in ways that reverberated throughout the mandatory period and into Israeli statehood. And I'll return to this question with some more details in the conclusion. But we also have to understand why Rutenberg chose to tackle opposition to his venture uh, um, sorry, by means of boundary work. The reason is connected to a prior condition linked to the precise spatio-technological properties of the system that he was trying to build. Moreover, the Palestinian opposition was itself a product of those same properties. The geographical scope of the power system, defined by the concession obtained by the British, uh, from the British, sorry, as coextensive with the newly created Palestine mandate uh, and the ubiquitous and invasive presence of electric grids conduced to a political reorientation from a nationalism centered on greater Syria. Uh, and this is obviously an image for, uh, from a talk where people didn't actually know what this was, uh, to a one centered on Palestine. Although electrification was not alone in causing this shift, it was critical in shaping the emergence of a new inside and outside, constituting Palestine conceptually as well as materially as an object of Palestinian national politics. Um, so as I mentioned, the story of electrification uh, in Jaffa is part of my larger research project and book manuscript. Um, and it draws on uh, many archives and sources in an, uh, a range of different languages. And 
ultimately it argues that the grid evolved together with Palestine to create the outcome that we all know of uh, in 1948. Uh, and it did so by affecting this process both in material ways and in conceptual mental ways. So materially, the borders of the mandate were mapped onto the power system uh, and structured an ethno-national division of capital, land, and labor that carried over into Jewish statehood and Palestinian statelessness. On the conceptual level, Conceiving of and building the system also produced Palestine as a bounded entity with a distinct political, social, and economic character. In this way, electrification participated in producing Palestine as a national space, as an economy, and an object of nationalist contention. Uh, and for this reason, and because, of course, the, the concessionaire was uh, a Zionist, uh, all the ways in which Palestine was produced as a distinct entity uh, were also imprinted it with a Jewish nationalist character, so I argue. So, but let's return to the, the story at hand. In uh, December 1920, uh, Pinchas Rutenberg applied to the British mandatory government in Palestine for an exclusive concession to electrify the country. Attached to the proposal was a carefully prepared 60-page proposal uh, that envisaged lining the banks of the Jordan River with 14 hydroelectrical power stations, drawing the motive force of the entire riparian system in and around the Jordan Valley. Rutenberg's proposals uh, elicited uh, considerable excitement uh, among British officials in Palestine and London, as we already saw. Uh, the Middle East Department head uh, wrote to Colonial Secretary Winston Churchill describing Rutenberg's plan as a potent factor, if not the most potent factor, uh, toward the successful development of Palestine. So I'm just laying this out to show how, what a tremendous degree of significance uh, this project uh, had in the eyes of British officials at the time. Uh, in part, the excitement was a product of the figure of Pinchas Rutenberg himself. He was born in 1879 in present-day Ukraine uh, and received his engineering training at the prestigious uh, St. Petersburg Polytechnic Institute. As a student, he became involved in politics and he joined the Socialist Revolutionary Party and was forced to flee after the abortive revolution of 1905, and he settled in Italy where he worked on large-scale irrigation projects. In his years of exile, uh, Rutenberg also began flirting with Zionism, and in 1915 he traveled to Palestine and began organizing Jewish self-defense forces uh, together with Vladimir Jabotinsky, the head of the revisionist Zionist movement. Uh, he later returned to Palestine in 1919 uh, and uh, settled there permanently. But the most important context for understanding British excitement over Rutenberg's proposal was the ideology of colonial development that predominated at the time. Uh, it was also known then as constructive imperialism. And in my book manuscript, I devote a long chapter to this topic, uh, and I'd be more than happy to talk more about it in the Q&A. Uh, but just for the purposes of this talk, uh, I'll just say that constructive imperialism uh, was the idea that if you invested in infrastructural technologies like dams and irrigation systems and railways, um, those things were thought to spur economic growth, which would then lead to civilizational advancement or uh, moral progress uh, in the language of the day. And to the British, Jews played an, a central role in this new colonial paradigm as it uh, was applied to Palestine. Uh, Jews, considered white but not quite, uh, seemed to the British to be ideally suited to develop Palestine by bringing their European education and their technical know-how and their capital for the benefit of all the area's inhabitants. So in other words, uh, to many British officials, Jews were a racial bridge between East and West, just as they thought Palestine should serve as a geographical bridge between these two large abstractions. Despite uh, the great enthusiasm uh, among the British, they were nevertheless apprehensive about awarding this countrywide scheme to Rutenberg right away. Uh, 
So uh, because Rutenberg sensed this, he attached a subsidiary plan uh, to, of more modest proportion, uh, proportions to his original one. Uh, and I apologize for the picture quality here. I'm not the greatest photographer, uh, as it turns out. What he proposed was to build a single hydroelectrical power station on the Auja River, uh, or the Yarkon in Hebrew, that would light and power the densely populated towns of Jaffa and Tel Aviv. The Auja plan called for utilizing the fall of the river by building a power station at a point about five miles inland from the Mediterranean coast, uh, and uh, uh, then from there a canal would issue uh, and loop back onto the river uh, after about two miles. And the estimated level difference of 20, uh, sorry, 21 feet and water flow of 300 cubic feet per second would be capable of generating 530 horsepower. A 6,000 volt high tension main would lead the current the three miles southwest to Tel Aviv and a transformer station on Allenby Street. And then from there, an underground uh, cable would carry the current uh, south to Jaffa. In fact, however, the Auja River was an exceedingly poor source of power. The 530 horsepower would be generated at considerable expense, and yet as Shores demand was bound to grow, the output was, of course, capped by the power of the river, which is negligible. Most observers were aware of this, including the consulting engineers that the British hired uh, to assess the scheme. For Rutenberg, however, uh, and he was certainly aware of the liver, uh, river's limitations, there were other benefits to going hydroelectrical that outweighed the plant's technological deficiencies. Most important, uh, the technological properties of hydropower itself offered a powerful argument for awarding a single uh, exclusive concession for the entire country. The heavy capital expenditure on the front end and the vast engineering work required made sense only if carried out on a large scale and monopolistically. A thermal power plant, by contrast, is much less costly and labor-intensive. It only requires a small patch of land to house the generators. Uh, as a result, uh, it doesn't uh, call itself, the technology doesn't call for any extensive monopoly. And since the Aouja scheme was deliberately designed to ease the British into the idea of awarding a countrywide concession to Rutenberg based on a, hydro, uh, on a hydroelectrical scheme, it was in Rutenberg's interest to make the uh, Jordan scheme and the Aouja scheme uh, technologically similar. Moreover, a scheme based on water power necessitates control of uh, wasp swaths of land in the Aouja River which in turn enabled Rutenberg to ask for and then subsequently receive uh, exclusive rights not only for uh, generation of electricity, but also irrigation. <clears throat> in other words, to Rutenberg, the Auja scheme was a cat's paw that was primi primarily designed not to bring electricity to uh, Jaffa and Tel Aviv, but to provide him with a claim uh, to a countrywide energy monopoly on the strength of technological necessity. The British also had their eyes on goals other than electrification, and besides the crucial role of power grids in the British view of colonial development, Rutenberg rep repeatedly dangled the uh, prospect of large capital influx from North American and European Jews who were keen to invest in productive work in Palestine. So these strong ulterior motives, both on the part of Rutenberg and the British, likely explains why neither Rutenberg nor the British or any of the experts that they hired to consult on the scheme really questioned the wisdom of spending 100,000 pounds on a scheme that could never yield any more power than 530 horsepower, which is basically what uh, you get in a modern sports car. So until this point, the Palestinian Arabs had hardly figured at all in the deliberation. But Rutenberg was well aware of the challenges that lay ahead. To his own people, he acknowledged that the Palestinian Arabs considered the undertaking as the most dangerous factor in the realization of Jewish claims in Palestine. And he noted that Arab meetings 
uh, in conferences have resolved to boycott the scheme and to fight against it with all might. Palestinian resistance constituted a problem for Gutenberg on two fronts. First, of course, it endangered his relationship with the British, since that relationship was based on the idea that economic development would bring about peace and prosperity. But second, Arab opposition also presented Rutenberg with a different kind of problem that uh, was connected to the techno-spatial properties of the electric grid. And that problem was sabotage. So even if Rutenberg succeeds in getting the money, his work will not progress, we will not sell him land, we will disturb his work, we will destroy his machinery. So Ibrahim Shamas, a member of the Palestinian Arab executive, was quoted in an intelligence report that was sent back to Rutenberg uh, shortly after he obtained the concession. Of course, electrification is not the only venture that had to develop in the face of Palestinian opposition or uh, to have to contend with the problem of sabotage. But electrification was uniquely vulnerable to it. The grid's sprawling character made it almost impossible to safeguard by force of arms, and local disruptions risked system-wide breakdowns, especially in a young grid that hadn't yet acquired the ability to reroute its power through auxiliary power lines. Only by gaining at least the passive consent of all of Palestine's inhabitants could Rutenberg viably secure the grid. And this profoundly influenced the nature of Rutenberg's efforts this, and his, the strategies that he adopted. So, despite a serious violent episode in May of 1921, British confidence in Rutenberg's electrification plan persisted, and a few months later, in September 1921, he granted, uh, the British granted the concession. Not only did it give Rutenberg exclusive rights to generate power and distribute electricity in the district of Jaffa, but it also gave him sole proprietorship of the Aouja River for irrigation purposes. Uh, and this is something that would come back again and again when uh, Palestinian farmers try and irrigate and Rutenberg sues them uh, in, the, in the Supreme Court in Palestine to prevent them from, from taking his water. Um, and in addition to this Jaffa scheme, Rutenberg also received a provisional contract for his countrywide electrification plan. So at this point, we've seen how a blend of factors, including colonial development policy, techn uh, technological visions and exigencies, and promises of capital influx, combined to secure the Jaffa electrification contract for Rutenberg. Seen from the perspective of the Palestinians, these facts combined to make Rutenberg's undertaking a threat to their national independence. And finally, we've also seen the contours of another essential techno-political element, namely the great physical vulnerability of a young electric grid and the beginnings of an oppositional Palestinian politics taking advantage of that fact. So I'll now turn to the countermeasures that Rutenberg employed to grapple with the Palestinian opposition to his scheme. So. While the national Palestinian leadership was adamantly opposed to Rutenberg's venture, the Arab municipality of Jaffa had a more complicated attitude. Electrification presented the muni municipality with a dilemma. Political activists from around the country sought to pressure the municipality not to accept Rutenberg's scheme, but at the same time, the town's commercial class was eager to receive electricity and were less uh, concerned, or at least their desire for electricity trumped whatever misgivings they may have had about taking electricity from Rutenberg. After obtaining the concession in September of 1921, uh, Rutenberg initiated negotiations with representatives of Jaffa and uh, the village of Sheikh Mouanes, uh, where most people uh, um, that held title, where most people lived who held title to the land that he needed to build his hydroelectrical installation. In negotiations with the Palestinians, Rutenberg offered them an arrangement by which the municipality would finance the local distribution system and thus become co-investors in the scheme. Calculated on the cost of constructing the grid, Rutenberg suggested that the municipality invest £25,000. 
Uh, and since the Jaffa Electric Company would have a total capital of £100,000, uh, <clears throat> £25,000 would mean a quarter ownership in the venture. Since the municipality couldn't raise that sum on its own, Rutenberg also prevailed on the British to issue a loan guarantee uh, for the amount and let the municipality pay the loan out of earnings uh, from the grid. <clears throat> Rutenberg also secretly issued a loan guarantee to the British for the loan guarantee that they offered uh, the Palestinians. Um, so clearly there are sort of extra uh, or non-economic considerations here because it was not a good deal, uh, but it was obviously very important for Rutenberg for other reasons to get Jaffa on board. So for Jaffa, the benefit of this arrangement was that they would not appear completely under Rutenberg's thumb. For Rutenberg, meanwhile, uh, making the municipality a co-investor was a safeguard against sabotage, since, in Rutenberg's words, it would give the municipalities a direct interest in establishing and safeguarding electric installations uh, in their own areas. And this, as the High Commissioner Herbert Samuel reported back to the Colonial Secretary, would greatly assist uh, in overcoming political opposition. So under heavy British pressure, Jaffa agreed to this plan, but made two conditions of their own. First, rather than participating with a quarter of the capital, the municipality demanded the right to buy a controlling share of 60%. Second, they demanded that there should be no company activity within Jaffa's boundaries. The power company should lead current as far as the transformer station loca located outside the borders, and then uh, the municipality would take care of the current from there and, and, and oversee the distribution within the town. The municipality uh, could hardly have expected that it would get, get its way. Even if, by some miracle, it would have been able to raise the £60,000, Rutenberg was hardly likely to surrender control of his company. Uh, the second demand was no more realistic, since controlling the electricity and infrastructure within a town's boundaries effectively constituted no control at all. Electricity can't be stored economically, and so without continuous current, an electric grid is only so many pylons and miles of copper wiring. Considering the demands of the municipality in light of the technological properties of an electric grid suggests that they be read not as blunt manifestations of anti-Zionism, but a more subtler uh, tactic uh, of negotiating multiple interests and external as well as internal pressures. Irrespective of the motivations behind the demands, there was a lot at stake in how Rutenberg decided to respond. Uh, shortly after Jaffa delivered its demands, the municipality of Haifa followed suit and demanded the right to buy a majority share of the local distribution system that was planned for its town. In the event, Rutenberg's response would give birth to a dynamic and modus operandi in relations between Zionists, British, and the Palestinians that would become a staple right through the mandatory uh, period and into Israeli statehood. The British were as committed as Rutenberg to rejecting Jaffa's demands and to doing so in a way that would not appear partisan or provoke violence. Over the course of two months, at the end of 1921, Rutenberg and the British shuttled drafts of replies back and forth between them until together they had worked out a strategy that didn't confront Jaffa's demands head on, but neutralized them by other means. In his response, Rutenberg stated that the inhabitants of Jaffa will have the same unlimited right to apply for shares of the company as any other persons on the terms of the issue. And as far as the placement of the transformer station and distribution system, it is purely a technical question. In other words, both demands were ref uh, met with reference to supposedly objective laws of nature, the free market and technological exigency. After all, as Rutenberg and the British insisted, this was the domain in which the electrification venture as a whole belonged. Rutenberg made these promises secure in the knowledge that Jaffa would have no means of coming up with £60,000 without some sort of preferential deal. And in the event, technical considerations would indeed require the presence of the Jaffa Electric Company inside the town's boundaries. 
Of course, the free market rationale was, wasn't consistent. Jaffa would get preferential treatment, and the rules of the free market would be suspended, but only up to the point of £25,000 and a quarter ownership in the venture. In other words, once Jaffa's participation as a substantial co-investor was secured, and they had a sufficient incentive to prevent sabotage, the rules of the free market <clears throat> would reactivate, ensuring that the municipality would remain effectively powerless. By deferring to the apparently objective demands of the technical and the market, Rutenberg effectively neutralized the political claims of the municipality. And he did so by asserting that the operative considerations of his venture were scientific, not political. <clears throat> so this episode in late 1921 was the first expression of a shift on Rutenberg's part away from any overtly political word or deed uh, and toward uh, a language that was more neutral uh, and, and revolved around economic and te technological necessity. The shift is well documented in the sources from about 1922 onwards, mainly because of Rutenberg's efforts to police the language of his associates when talking about the project. In a particularly vitriolic exchange with a Zionist executive member, Rutenberg wrote that on several occasions, I have explained to you that under the present extremely difficult conditions, I am bound to conduct my work on strict business lines and decisively separate myself from any connection with the Zionist organization. Like many who protest too much, however, Rutenberg was not telling the whole story. In fact, the language of scientific and economic reason was strategically deployed as the situation called for it, and in different circumstances, he slipped into different registers. So I want to just pause for a second to make an important distinction. Uh, Rutenberg's response, that was carefully workshopped together with the British, didn't simply amount to politics by another name. It was a displacement of political power onto technical things that was motivated as much by technological as by political ideas. Most importantly, the strong preference for large-scale undertakings under centralized control that was shared by colonial officials, British consulting engineers, and Rutenberg himself. Indeed, the training that Rutenberg had received at the St. Petersburg Polytechnical Institute uh, was geared precisely toward becoming what Thomas Hughes, in a landmark study of electrification in Western society, has called an entrepreneur engineer, uh, who steers large-scale projects by operating at the interface between technology and politics. Hughes traces a lineage from manager engineers like Samuel Insull, the man who electrified Chicago, to the German engineer turned politician Oskar von Miller, uh, whose professional career parallels Rutenberg's to an uncanny degree. Hugh says of Mon uh, von Miller that, quote, in order to innovate or bring technology into use, he solved multifaceted problems involving geography, economics, politics, institutions, social values, and many other factors. So it would be too simplistic to understand Rutenberg's actions as mere Zionist scheming, although certainly there's some of that also. But to understand the full power of Rutenberg's actions and why they were so effective, we also have to understand uh, the full extent of the forces that he was marshalling in pursuit of his project. Like Samuel Insull in Chicago and Oskar von Miller in Germany and Charles Mertz in Britain, the primary challenge confronting Rutenberg in Palestine was how to stitch together technical and non-technical elements and figuring out how to advance this project by shaping it and its environment so that he appeared to hold the solution to a critical problem. Uh, or that's to say, making his venture an obligatory passage point on the path to an economically prosperous and therefore civilized Palestine. As a result of the particular convergence of forces acting on Palestinian electrification, Rutenberg positioned himself so that he was able to pursue his interests by way of objective exigency. The move didn't do away with politics, but created a means of pursuing goals that had clear political implications by wholly non-political means. 
Or, as Rutenberg in one of his blunter moments put it, the principle of money talks eliminates difficulties with Arabs and workers. As Rutenberg excised politics from his vocabulary, at least in public, so too did the British. They likewise benefited from the money talks framing, which allowed them to retain a neutral posture in Palestine, shielding them from charges of pro-Zionist bias at home and from the Permanent Mandates Commission of the League of Nations. So from this point onwards, labeling his opponents as political and contrasting their behavior to his own actions of pure rationality was a formula that Rutenberg successfully resorted to on many occasions. For, in for instance, when he found that Arab landowners in the Uja Basin were asking for sums that in his estimation were far above market value, he abandoned the hydroelectrical station in favor of a fuel-powered station on the outskirts of Tel Aviv. In order to convince the British of the necessity of that change, he portrayed the Palestinian landowners as making political, politically motivated uh, demands, which he contrasted again to his own scientific attitude to the free market and how prices for land are determined. And again then, Rutenberg employed boundary work as his primary tool to promote his venture. He sent reports to the British complaining about exorbitant land prices and asserted that despite his um, see, uh, clear business exposition of the matter, a number of demagogic agitators were driving up the prices, making the transactions commercially prohibitive. So in the spring of 1922, as the fuel sets arrived off the coast of Jaffa, Rutenberg presented his solution to the British. He explained that given the Palestinians' politically motivated demands for sums out of all proportion to the market prices, he had decided to put the Auja hydroelectrical scheme on hold and instead construct a fuel-powered generating station on the outskirts of Tel Aviv. The fuel station would produce at least as much electricity as the hydroelectrical station, Rutenberg noted, and he asked that the postponement of the latter be approved. Uh, the colonial secretary, Winston Churchill, immediately approved his request. Oh, look at that. On September 18, 1922, work began... I just have a comment. Yes. He's not approved this uh, concession, by the way. Just, he did the project. He built the project, then he interpreted what he had done, and they, they said, it's okay. Yeah. They, they, he did not give any prior approval for the diesel generator uh, station. Um, well, okay, yeah, okay. Uh, on September 18th, 1922, work began on the Jaffa scheme that had now been refashioned as a thermoelectric plant near Tel Aviv. Rutenberg had managed to affect the change of locations and technologies while retaining his concession in full. Uh, and including the exclusive irrigation rights over the 355 square miles of the Auja Basin, as well as the municipal investment scheme and electricity rates that were both calculated on the technology and cost of the original and much more expensive hydroelectrical installation. It was a high-risk move with an equally high reward that allowed Rutenberg to have his cake and eat it too. Another vital consideration for Rutenberg was the link between Palestinian oppositional politics and sabotage. Moving the powerhouse out of the Auja Basin and to the outskirts of Tel Aviv would drastically reduce the Palestinians' ability to sabotage the electrical equipment and thus reduce the efficacy of any political demand grounded in that ability. So, later on, Rutenberg wrote, the Arabs will be begging us to renegotiate. So throughout the period, opposition to electrification remained a constant in the larger Palestinian resistance to Zionism and to British policy. Protests intensified as construction began on the power system in the summer of 1922. Toward the spring of 1923, opposition to Rutenberg grew increasingly active and vocal. In May, an anti-electrification petition was circulated uh, in Jaffa and got thousands of signatures. And the same month, a group of Palestinian activists wrote, wrote to the mayor of Jaffa stating that the native inhabitants are all determined to refuse the scheme from its foundation as it is prejudicial uh, to their national and political rights. <clears throat> 
Opposition to Rutenberg and Jaffa was invariably expressed in national terms. For, furthermore, Jaffans were not the only ones engaged in the cause. News articles, pamphlets, and letters from around the country made it clear that electrification had become a matter of national concern uh, all over Arab Palestine. The struggle against it emerged as a key site of defining and performing the nation. By 1923, it was widely known that in addition to the Jaffa scheme, the British had given Rutenberg preliminary approval for a countrywide concession. Consequently, the solidarity of Palestine's Arabs with Jaffa was a natural outgrowth of the concession's reach. In Haifa, Tiberias, Jerusalem, and other places, Palestinians were engaged in their own struggle against what they saw as the threat of Zion's current. Like the grid itself, it was a struggle that bound together many local environments into a national home. Meanwhile, the threat of sabotage was ever-present. In the fall, the British authorities arrested two Arab agitators who were alleged to have incited a crowd at the Mosque of Omar in Jerusalem against Rutenberg's works and exhorted the audience to sabotage the electric power station in Jaffa. Confronted with a Palestinian opposition that was growing increasingly active and vocal, Rutenberg was forced to find a way to neutralize it. He sensed that he had hit a wall in the major Palestinian centers, and so he turned to Tiberias uh, in hopes of detaching the weakest link in the Palestinian national circuit. For the past year, Rutenberg had been cultivating relations with the long-serving mufti of Tiberias, Abd al-Salam Atabari, and the mayor Zaki al-Hudayf, and other prominent Muslim leaders through a local agent referred to in the records of the power company simply as Mr. X. Those efforts paid dividends in mid-October 1923 at the height of anti-electrification agitation. When the Tiberias municipality voted unanimously to accept Rutenberg's scheme for electrification. <clears throat> in this instance, money did change hands, and Rutenberg justified it by saying that the breaking of the Arab Front, uh, sorry, the breaking of the Arab Front is very important, and I'm doing my best to obtain this first important practical result. It was a tenuous relationship, Rutenberg knew, between his outfit and people who can be bought by our enemies as easily as they are bought now, but it was all it took. The first defection from the ranks of Palestinian resistance caused the unraveling of the opposition as a whole. National resistance crumbled almost immediately, and Rutenberg, who proceeded directly from Tiberias, managed through a series of negotiations to get an oral commitment from the mayor to accept the scheme less than a month after Tiberias' decision. The very next morning, before an official agreement had been signed, Rutenberg turned on the switch in Jaffa, having done all the preparatory work for just such an occasion. By Rutenberg's own reckoning, getting Jaffa on board had been key, and he promptly expanded the grid by another six miles in Jaffa, making a total length of 20 miles. In addition, he added a fifth transformer station in the exclusively Arab neighborhood of Ajami. Uh, and of course, expanding the grid was in the nature of the enterprise. But Rutenberg's alacrity at this critical juncture should also be understood from the point of view of Palestinian oppositional politics. By thickening the grid and creating auxiliary power generators and alternate pathways for the current, Rutenberg was effectively reducing its vulnerability to sabotage and thus the force of Palestinian oppositional politics. Meanwhile, the sudden collapse of uh, Palestinian resistance to Rutenberg was the result of effective pressure being brought to bear on a thin circuitry of another kind, namely that of a nascent national movement. Hmm? <laughs> Sorry. Um, the pressure to agree to Rutenberg's plan emanated from all directions, and the British exerted strong uh, pressure on Jaffa and Haifa <coughs> to take Rutenberg's current. But pressure also emanated from within the Arab community, as some politicians, like the mayor of Jaffa, never opposed the scheme, in large part because his constituency wanted electricity and were less political, uh, particular about the political and then the political elite about the source of that power. Indeed, proponents of accepting Rutenberg's plan within the Palestinian community reproduced Rutenberg's own boundary work. 
So in July 1923, for instance, the municipality of Jaffa received a letter from a group of Arab merchants with businesses located on the town's main thoroughfares, stating that, quote, we oppose the fact that you have adjoined politics to matters of economic importance. Soon afterward, the Jaffa Chamber of Commerce wrote to the assistant district governor endorsing the appeal of the merchants and saying that politics should not interfere with business. So four short years after his arrival in Palestine and two years after winning the concession, Rutenberg had secured the consent of virtually the entire territory for his project. Large Palestinian towns, including Ramla and Acre, had put in unofficial applications for electricity shortly after the lights went on in Jaffa. Meanwhile, the grid in Jaffa and Tel Aviv had been substantially expanded, and in the year and a half after Rutenberg concluded the agreement with Jaffa, electricity consumption increased by 456%. By the end of 1925, Rutenberg's current was lighting and powering Tel Aviv, Haifa, Jaffa, and Tiberias. So, to conclude, uh, politics in Palestine, as I've argued, was mediated and therefore influenced by electrification. The precise properties of electricity influenced not just the character of the pursuit, but also what ends were available to pursue in the first place. Conversely, the history of Palestine's electrification is a deeply political history. The means of electric uh, electricity generation, the design and reach of the grid, and its planned expansion were all influenced by political considerations. As a result, the electric grid ins inscribed itself on the conflict as the conflict inscribed itself on the grid in turn. So I've examined this episode as an instance of boundary work as an attempt to draw the borders around an activity so as to define it in a way favorable to one's own interests. Uh, this strategy, of course, was not all of Rutenberg's own making. A key condition of its success was the ability to evolve in response to events on the ground in Palestine through ongoing interaction between Rutenberg, British officials, and Palestinian po uh, politicians, activists, and merchants. It built on the developmentalist rationale of late British colonialism, and it was an elaboration on a familiar Zionist discourse that had already emerged in conversation with British imperialism, namely that the Jews' superior ability to develop Palestine would improve the lives of everyone of the, uh, living there. To say that Rutenberg engaged in boundary work is not simply to say that he hid his political agenda behind the technical rationale. His boundary work constituted a claim for a fundamental conceptual division of Palestine, and the nature of this division flowed from the techno-social properties of the system that he was seeking to promote and had consequences far beyond it. First of all, Rutenberg's boundary work propelled both him and his uh, uh, strategy to vaunted positions. Following the Palestinian Arab riots of 1929, Rutenberg was appointed chairman of the Vad Leumi, or the executive branch of the Jewish state in the making. And through the 1930s, as Arab-Jewish relations deteriorated, Rutenberg was at the forefront of efforts to bring about rapprochement. He negotiated with different Palestinian Arab factions, as well as with leaders of surrounding countries, including Nouria Said of Iraq, and he became especially close with Amir Abdullah of Transjordan, uh, a relationship that was founded on their uh, shared interest in the Jordan River. In short, Brutenberg's boundary work carved out a political space for him from which he exerted powerful influence on mandatory politics. As for the Palestinians, electrification was one of their first national rallying cries. Rutenberg's uh, countrywide electrification scheme called out for resistance of the same geographic scope. Electrification stopped at Palestine's newly defined borders while drawing together local arenas within that territory by virtue of designating them all targets of the grid's growth. All across the country, Palestinians were talking about electrification, ur urging each other to remain steadfast in the face of Rutenberg's attempt to co-opt them. In this sense, the grid can be thought of as another technology besides print capitalism, producing the effect of coevalness at the heart of Benedict Anderson's well-known formula for the emergence of uh, national uh, imagined communities. 
The Palestinians' eventual failure to maintain a united front against electrification facilitated the thickening of the grid, and that in turn reduced its vulnerability to sabotage and changed the conditions for oppositional politics. Failure steered the fractured Palestinian national movement in a new direction, and for the remainder of the decade, the Palestinians sought to fight the system from within. By losing the competition to define the boundaries of electrification, the Palestinians lost in other ways too. As they saw their claims being stripped of epistemic authority and moved out into the subjective realm of politics. For the duration of the mandate, some parts of the Palestinian community continued what might be called oppositional boundary work, insisting on the fundamentally political nature of electricity. Yet a growing segment of the Palestinian population, as in the case of Jaffa's merchants, came to adopt Rutenberg's conceptual framework, even in instances where they maintained their opposition to Rutenberg himself. There's also the question of why Rutenberg opted to promote his venture by means of boundary work in the first place, and why he was successful. In both cases, the answer lies in the precise properties of the technological project that he was promoting, which both forced and enabled him to make such an argument. Forced because uh, the vulnerability of the electrical system compelled Rutenberg to seek to realize his scheme by co-optive means rather than coercive means. But the grid also enabled his boundary work and then critically shaped it throughout. The claims that he was able to make for irrigation rights, for instance, were tightly linked to the technological circumstances of his project. My story therefore adds a dimension to Timothy Mitchell's work, uh, exploring the link between energy infrastructures and politics uh, in the book Carbon Democracy. But rather than locating structuring effects only in the shift from one energy system to another, so from coal, coal, coal to oil in Mitchell's case, in this talk I've tried to bring a greater sense of fluidity to the process by underscoring how the continual evolution of infrastructure is forever reshaping political possibilities. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frederick. Uh, this is actually one of the least examined uh, features of the early Arab-Israeli conflict, the question of electrification and the associated issue of irrigation, which you right. hinted to at the end. Uh, both actually at, at the heart of understanding the early roots of the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. Most of um, studies are focused on issues of land and property. Mm. I want to open the discussion to the floor, but I want to just suggest some clarification. Uh, the sustained Arab opposition to Rutenberg uh, was based in your uh, presentation on substantial grounds or purely on the issue of Rutenberg's Jewish and Zionist connection. In other words, was there an alternative plan that the Arab mm -hmm. opposition took? Jerusalem, for example, was electrified by earlier schemes. Yeah. Was there an attempt to expand that to the rest of the country or was it simply because he was part of the Zionist association? Did they have a, a substantial criticism of right. the project? Uh, they, they did. Uh, uh, not sure that they did in, in this uh, very in the earliest phase. Um, the, the grid in Jerusalem wasn't wasn't built until 1929-1930, even though the concession dates back to 1914. Um, their main uh, uh, objection was the fact that Rutenberg was um, a Zionist, and and that they assumed rightly, I'd say. That he was going to promote, uh, a, you know, the Jewish national home, rather than you know be uh, distribute power equitably and build the grid uh, without uh, consideration of, of ethnicity and things like that. Um, but they also, as, as uh, time progressed, it also becomes obvious that the um, uh, Jewish sector and the Arab sector are quite different. They have a different economic profile. So that the large-scale uh, electrification that Rutenberg undertakes doesn't really work for the Palestinians who are prevented from uh, operating any alternative scheme because the concession was exclusive. 
So for, the, for the country. For the whole country, <coughs> yeah. So oh, uh, all over the place. And Rutenberg has a whole team of people throughout the mandatory period who are out and about in, in Palestinian towns uh, recording illegal uh, generators and so on and then suing them in the courts. And he, they do this over and over and over again to guard the monopoly. So um, there was no way of setting up an alternative system. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they brought in some engineers from um, Egypt and so on to assess the scheme and uh, yeah, they had some concerns. But mainly it was just a, it was trapping them. Mm. Okay. So, any interventions, please? So, I'm Tam Khatib, Professor of Renewable Energy from Anajah National University. Um, in general, I have to talk quite technical, to tell okay. some technical information. Yeah, yeah. For all, because when uh, Rottenberg proposed his hydro uh, generators based on Jordan River, and he said that we can, yeah, we can power this huge area, it was a technical joke, because this, this is impossible, technically. And then he um, converted this plan to power um, uh, the district of Java and um, uh, Tel Aviv based on an Java, which was another technical joke. And despite all of that, British, the British colonial at that time approved this plan. And they said, well, you can, you can um, power this district and just make peace with the Palestinians. And they just told him that, yeah, okay, you can make um, justice with the Palestinian Jews. And they, they, they put this in the agreements and they showed this, yeah, you have to uh, assure the justice between both um, 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 people though, so as to, um, um, let's say, highlight or vision in this country. Despite all of that, um, it was, as I said, it was a technical joke, and he contacted German um, um, engineers who are Siemens um, um, equipment so as to buy diesel generators without even informing the British colony about his plan. And once um, he installed this base on the German, I, I will let you comment on this, when, once he bought these diesel generators and he installed these diesel generators in Java powerhouse, um, um, he just wrote to the, um, <coughs> the British uh, telling them about the alternative plan because they, he said, well, Ojalva wasn't uh, technically accepted by the Germans, and they said it's not, uh, it will not be able to power all district. And he um, uh, started generating power using the diesel generators, and in fact, it was another plan to utilize. And the, the funny issue that the UK they give him an exclusive concession of utilizing the water of Oja at that time. And they did not cancel it even after installing the diesel generators on that side. So now he has two concessions: one to generate electricity using diesel, which is illegal by the, the British, and he had the concession to use the Oja uh, water, which was utilized to irrigate all of the orange farms or fields in Java, which greatly support the Jew immigrants or the Jew labor immigrants in this district. And. Um, Despite all of that, um, he started generating just a small power to the, to the Tel Aviv. And here I think, as you said, um, there weren't um, a clear uh, resistance plan of the Arab so as to fight this. Because usually you cannot just boycott, um, um, let's say, the civilization under the name of, um, uh, as it says, nationality, let's say. Because you cannot control it. And that's happened when Fawzi Abu Khadra, his name, I'm not sure if you um, do research about him, he bought a lot of lands to the Rottenberg on the way from Java to Tel Aviv so as to put the pools of the electricity over there to reach the... He, he bought land on behalf of Rottenberg. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and um, he promised him with money. And who paid the money? The, the, the British colony uh, paid the money for Fawzi Abu Khadra at that time. And um, once they installed everything, now the, the conflict in Java started. The educated people, they said, well, this is um, a Zionist uh, project, we have to boycott it, we, we don't need electricity. While the businessmen, business sector, the industry, they said, no, we need electricity. Because um, we cannot boycott like civilization. We need, um, uh, and Rutenberg was very clever, by the way, because he just hired Arab people, he hired, um, uh, he was very nice with the Arabs in Java just to promote his electricity. Because after all, he's a businessman. He just wants to, to sell the, the fuel that, or the, the electricity units that he generates. So um, at the end, he could not um, penetrate Java as he penetrated uh, Tel Aviv. Um, um, just some pools, some lights, and he used to give a lot of gifts to the people. He used to hire Arab people. He used to put a lot of promotion in the newspaper of Java, or like in the newspaper, uh, newspaper over there. And once he was sure that okay, Java is not the target, he can uh, sell his all of money. He just started a new 
funny project that he proposed a new proposal to the British colony to electrify the, the Hejaz railway and to work on this trade and he got it after a while. So uh, in my opinion, just to conclude, Rottenberg was propo proposing an engineering work um, uh, to make benefits and uh, because of the careless decisions of the EU, British colony of this land, he did the, the greatest benefit of, out of that in terms of economically and the Zionist movement, they just found it a very nice opportunity to make also a great uh, political issues or use out of that. So uh, I have some criticism. I, I think that the Arab resistance at that time, they did not have the plan despite, by the way, um, when uh, the, 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 the British uh, colony, they gave the concession to to uh, Gothenburg, there were some concessions by the Ottoman uh, Empire to, Empire to uh, the Palestinians on that side, but they, they totally ignored it. So it's all about Rottenberg who can generate electricity in Palestine. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Shall we take uh, another two intervention and then you can respond? Sure. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Can you into, uh, identify yourself, please? I'm interested to hear where the argument about the British not respecting the Ottoman concessions to mm. the the Greek uh, contractor in 1914. Yeah. And all the legal cases, when I forget his name, this uh, Greek contractor, uh, he, he filed cases against the British to respect the yeah. concession that was given, and all of those legal cases where they do come into this argument about the politics yeah. of uh, electrifying Palestine. Right. Um, Wait a minute. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <coughs> okay, any other points? Please. Uh, I, does that mean there is no, there was no electricity in Palestine before Gutenberg came in? And how do you compare Palestine with, with greater Syria? I mean, when did they get their own? Can you please identify yourself? I'm Ula and I'm also from the FTC. Um, I would be interested in getting more information about the term of uh, constructive imperialism. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go. Let's go, okay. Uh, please try to do it in 10 minutes because we need to vacate this. Room. Sure, yeah, yeah, I'll do it really fast. The whole issue with the Greek concessionaire is really interesting. He got a concession in 1914, as you say. He wasn't able to develop it because of World War I. Um, and then when the British came in, they weren't aware of him at first. Uh, and so when they started negotiating with Rutenberg, they didn't know he existed. And then when he made himself known to the British, um, they wanted to just dismiss him. And so he sued them uh, in the newly established uh, Permanent Court of Justice in The Hague and won. Uh, and I recently heard that this is one of the first cases, if you study law at Hebrew University, one of the first cases that you study is this uh, international case of Mavramatis, as it was, his name was, where he won the concession. But basically then they made it so what, difficult. What year was that? 1926. Hmm. But they made it so difficult for him, and I'm not sure what the truth is behind this exactly, but either he never intended to develop the concession himself, he just wanted to get it to sell it on and make money selling the concession, or he wasn't able to develop it in himself. But ultimately he ended up selling it in 1928 to a British company that then ran the, the um, company in, in um, Jerusalem. Um, and uh, it, it's an interesting story because then it was taken over um, in the in the 60s by Palestinians again. And Anwar um, Nusaybe, uh, Sari Nusaybe's father, was the chairman of it for a long time. And it was so yeah. So it's an interesting um, sort of uh, the side story to to like the Rutenberg story. Um, there was electricity in Palestine uh, before Rutenberg, but they were only they were they weren't inter interconnected. So there were just individual generators. I think the first place that had a generator was uh, uh, Notre Dame in Jerusalem, uh, and they got one in 1897, I think. Uh, Syria uh, and it was under French. Uh, yeah, under French control. That's right. 
And, and Syria and Lebanon both contracted this uh, Dutch company, and so they got uh, street lighting uh, in 19, I want to say 1913, but just before World War I. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting, uh, what I find fascinating anyway, is that whereas in Lebanon, with all the sects, uh, there, there are myriad uh, contracts. So there are all these tiny little grids all over Lebanon. Whereas in Palestine, at the same time, there's obviously one force that's much more powerful, which is the Zionist force. And so there's one grid, and then there's the smaller grid in Jerusalem. But so, kind of, if you just look at a map of the grids of Lebanon and, and Palestine in 1945, it actually tells you a lot about power relations within those two societies, which um, I think is an interesting uh, thing. Constructive imperialism uh, is... Um, was, it was an idea that was launched in the late uh, uh, 19th century by uh, the uh, Foreign Secretary in Britain, uh, Joseph Chamberlain. And the idea was that you would uh, invest large amounts of money in building up the material foundations of uh, colonial societies, and that way they would become productive uh, and then the, the infrastructure would also facilitate taking products out of the colonies to sell on the world market. And so everyone would benefit. Uh, the, you know, the uncivilized natives would benefit economically, and so then that would make them civilized, which is obviously great in the sort of mentality of the day. And then the world would also sort of prosper by, by facilitating you know, greater movement of goods and capital and so on. So that was like the basic idea of constructive imperialism. And it came out of public works projects within Britain itself. So he had previously been uh, the mayor uh, of Liverpool and then uh, enacted all these policies like sort of within the country. And then he went to Egypt and the Caribbean and, said, and, and thought, well, we could do this on a global scale for the British Empire. And, yeah, and then this happened. There was an intriguing uh, sentence you mentioned. First, you said the Jaffa Chamber of Commerce was ambivalent about the Rutenberg project. Then you said at the end that the Jaffa merchants uh, were insistent that politics and, uh, and technology yeah. should not mix. Yeah. Were they saying that the Rutenberg should not mix his Zionism with his project, or were they op opposing the Arab nationalist position? Oh, I'm sorry if that wasn't... No, no. They were writing to the mayor of Jaffa saying, you're the one who's mixing politics with technology. Ah, they were... Because you're wanted, refusing... Yeah, you wanted Rutenberg to be... Yeah, ah, yeah. Okay. So they were I... angry with the, with the municipal council ah. for, for refusing to accept Rutenberg's right, scheme. Right. Uh-huh. Um, well, thank you very much. It was a lovely lecture and uh, very enjoyable. And thank you all for your patience. Yes, thanks everyone for your patience. <laughs>